My dad died. I miss my friends because of... I don't know how to tell my friends that. I want to help my friends. I don't know how. The pandemic has left me feeling very lonely. How can I best support students in my classroom? The morning meeting is meant to be a place to let you know that you are not alone. We can get through this together. So join us. Listen, learn, share your stories. This is the morning meeting. Today, we're fortunate to interview David Levin. He was the executive director of End of Life Choices of New York between 2002 and 2016, which is when I got to meet him and first volunteer for this organization. Since then, he has been the executive director emeritus and senior consultant. The organization seeks to ensure that patients have their health care wishes honored at the end of their life and that they receive quality care while not receiving unwanted care. An advocate for patients and an expert in advanced care planning, patient rights, palliative care, and end-of-life issues, including medical aid in dying, Mr. Levin has played a leadership role in having legislation introduced and enacted in New York to improve pain, palliative, and end-of-life care. He initiated the Palliative Care Education and Training Act, the Palliative Care Information Act, and several other laws pertaining to health care proxies. Mr. Levin, who lectures frequently to diverse groups of citizens, healthcare professionals, lawyers, and students, is a graduate of the University of Rochester and Syracuse University College of Law. We're very happy to have him here with us today. So good morning, David. Thank you so much for joining us on the Morning Meeting Podcast. Very happy to be with you. Thank you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about you and the work that you're doing? Well, I'm a lawyer by training, um, and I practiced law for decades, uh, and I've always practiced in a way in which I was seeking justice, uh, justice for poor people as a legal services lawyer for the poor in Rochester for 10 years, uh, then justice for prisoners as the executive director of a program called Prisoners Legal Services of New York in New York City, um, and now... Now, for the past um, 18 years, I've been seeking justice for patients, uh, working for End of Life Choices New York, first as its, as, its, as its executive director for 14 years, and now for the past four years as uh, the executive director, emeritus, and senior consultant. I think I met you probably 10 or 11 years ago um, when I started volunteering for your organization. Yeah, that sounds right. And uh, yep. I wish you'd stayed as a volunteer instead of going <laughs> off and getting getting a paid job. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could. <laughs> um, so when I told people that I was interviewing you, so many people were asking me why I would be talking to somebody, uh, you know, who works in the end of life space when my podcast is devoted to young adults. And... I have very clear understanding why I think it's so important for young adults to be talking about end of life. But what's your thought about young adults and discussions about end of life? Oh, there's absolutely no question in my mind that young people, uh, anybody 18 or over, really should be talking about end of life issues, particularly with their parents and grandparents, uh, first to ensure uh, that they know their parents 
uh, end-of-life wishes, what makes life meaningful for them, what would not make life meaningful for them any longer if they could no longer uh, make healthcare decisions for themselves, uh, and then to ensure, hopefully, that their parents have completed uh, what's called a healthcare proxy in many states, but in some states called a durable power of attorney, which is re- a relatively simple document to complete um, so that someone is appointed to make decisions for the person if and when they can no longer make healthcare decisions for themselves. And most people actually lose the ability about 70% to make healthcare decisions for themselves at some point. So that means that somebody's going to have to make decisions for them. So it's not a question um, of whether uh, someone will have to make decisions. It's a question as to who it's going to be and what decisions are going to be made and will they be made in accordance with the person's wishes. And with respect to younger people going through the, the exact same process and completing this document, it's extremely important because anything can happen to anybody at any time. People can suffer from an, an acute illness or injury, uh, and they may lose decision-making capacity at some point and possibly forever. And in fact, all of the leading court cases involving uh, people with regard to end-of-life decision-making seem to involve young people uh, in their late teens or early 20s. Tell us a little bit more about that. Like, I wonder why it's, you know, clearly more people that are older are dying. So why is it, why is all this attention drawn to the young people? Well, because some of those cases were very interesting, and one of them went up to the United States Supreme Court. Um, This is a case involving a young woman in Missouri who was driving a car and she lost control, uh, had an accident, uh, and was in what's called a persistent vegetative state uh, soon thereafter. And and the question was, well, what was to be done with her in terms of health care? Would she she be kept alive or not? Uh, And if so... Uh, Would she have a feeding tube, a ventilator to help her breathe? And so her parents had to make these decisions for her. But, of course, she had not completed this healthcare proxy document and did not appoint, had not appointed anybody, whether her parents or somebody else, to make these decisions. So her parents were left to make decisions for her. And the question was whether or not they had the legal authority to do so. Well, ultimately, the Supreme Court of the United States decided that they did have such a right, but states could set the criteria for how and when these decisions could be made. But it was very difficult for them to make decisions with regard to their daughter, whose name was Nancy Cruzan, because it wasn't clear exactly what she would want or not want, but apparently there was enough evidence to show that she would not want to continue to live in the circumstances in which she now found herself, which meant that she was never going to regain consciousness. And so ultimately, life-sustaining treatments were withdrawn from her. A second case, which was terrible because of the conflicts which arose, uh, involved um, a woman in Florida. Uh, And this particular woman was, um, because of a combination, I think, or a a chemical imbalance, uh, lost decision-making capacity, was in a persistent vegetative state as well. 
And the question, again, arose as to who could make decisions for her and what decisions could be made. Well, her parents uh, wanted to keep her alive, understandably. She was a young person in her 20s um, at at the time. Uh, They were very religious uh, and understandably wanted to keep their loving daughter alive, even though it did not appear from all the evidence that she would ever regain consciousness, but they thought that they were communicating with her. This is Terry Terry Shivo case, uh, which arose in the early 2000s, was decided in 2015 by by the courts. And her husband, uh, who had actually become a nurse to take care of her, uh, at some point years after she was bedridden and totally dependent on life-sustaining treatments, um, decided that nothing more could be done for her and that no miracle was going to occur and that life-sustaining treatment should be removed. So this terrible conflict arose between Terry Schiavo's husband, who had moved on, now was with another woman, but still really cared for Terry, and Terry's parents, even though they had gotten along really well uh, before this situation arose. And what happened here was this case, which could have easily been decided relatively quickly, presumably, if Terry had appointed someone to be her healthcare agent or husband or, or one of her parents or somebody else, uh, now went uh, through the courts in Florida uh, and ultimately uh, through the state legislature, because after the court the highest state court in Florida decided that the husband could make decisions for Terry and that there was sufficient evidence to show that she would not want to live in the circumstances in which she found herself. The Florida state legislature gave the governor, which who was then Jeb Bush, the authority to order the reinsertion of a feeding tube, which had already been withdrawn. Um, and then um, the, the the case went back to the court, and the, the court decided no, um, that's this is un, that's unconstitutional. And believe it or not, this case now actually went to the Congress of the United States, where the Congress passed what seems to be a one-person Terry Schiavo bill, um, giving again the authority to parents not just to go into state court, uh, but to go into federal court to challenge whether or not Terry Schiavo had been had received due process of law. Well, every judge that ruled in the case ruled in favor of Terry's husband, uh, but a law was signed into effect in Congress, uh, which gave the authority for the Schi- Terry Schiavo's parents to go into court by the then president, which was who was George Bush, uh, Jeb's brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a terrible fiasco, and and again, uh, ultimately there was the the court ruling which said that Terry Schiavo's husband had the right to uh, make decisions for Terry, and and he decided to have life sustaining withdrawn, and at that point uh, Terry died soon after. But there were a lot of people that got involved in this case. Uh, in in terms of submitting amicus briefs, friend of the court briefs, and there were religious groups on both sides um, and others who argued uh, in support of either Terry's husband or Terry's parents. And again, understandably, 
uh, arguing on both sides. Uh, but if Terry's wishes had been known clearly, and if she had appointed someone to be her health care agent, uh, this whole situation might have been avoided, at least to the extent that it, uh, that it played out. So that went on for 15 years, you're saying? In it went out to, for a very long time from the beginning wow. uh, until the end. I think the, the court cases went on for se- at least several years. Oh, so this goodness. is the kind of thing you, you really want to avoid. And it's, it, it's of course, quite difficult yeah. um, to, uh, to make these kinds of decisions and to have these discussions. But when you ask people... Uh, you know, we, we have a 100% mortality rate in this country, yes, believe it or do. not. Everybody's going to die eventually. So the only question really, again, is how are people going to die and whether they're going to die on their own terms or someone going to be making decisions for them, not knowing what the heck the person would have wanted or not wanted in terms of care and treatment and when, if ever, they would have wanted some kinds of treatment stopped. So if you ask people uh, whether or not um, they think it's important to talk with their loved ones about end-of-life treatment in particular, about 90% would say yes, but only about 30% or less have done so. And if you ask people if they think they should be talking with their doctors about their uh, preferences, about their values, about what makes life meaningful and doesn't, and when they would want certain types of treatment and when they wouldn't. Again, about 80% said that they think it's important to have these discussions, but about 7% have actually had such conversations. So there's a real disconnect between what people think is important and what they actually do uh, in terms of having these discussions and completing these documents. Mm -hmm. And for again, for young people, it's extremely important to go through the process, even though young people don't want to think about doing this um, uh, ordinarily uh, right. because it's not something which is on their minds. But like anything else that you are planning, uh, whether it's planning to go to to college or planning for to for job making job applications or or doing your taxes when you start working, it's something you have to you should be paying attention to. For sure. And I think also because, you know, young people die more frequently of things like accidents, um, drug overdoses, um, and older people die from illnesses. But young people are more likely to get into an accident and then not be able to speak for themselves. So uh, they're not, you know, getting sick as, as you know, at, at the same rates as, as older people are. Uh, so it doesn't give them that sort of impetus uh, that some older adults might take when they when they get a diagnosis and say, "Oh, now it's time to have the conversation." Well, I'm that's just, absolutely right. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, consider that now with COVID, there are more younger people dying um, of this this illness because it can be. Um, extremely serious, even for young people, although for younger people, it's generally not as, as serious. But but you're right about accidents, no question mm-hmm. about that. And there are younger people, of course, who um, can have serious, they can have people, young people can have strokes, uh, yeah. although it's usually accidents, as, as you suggest. Mm-hmm. So 
it, uh, there's a saying that's from the Conversation Project, and I would urge people actually to go to the Conversation Project website because they have a lot of very good, useful information, uh, questions and answers, and things that might be considered as you are planning to go through this process. Because they, what they say is, it's never too early until it's too late. And yeah. so people put this process off for, for too long. So, and I can tell you, well, um, I may be a hypocrite on some things. On this issue, um, my wife and I, and my wife has taught the uh, end-of-life issue. She, she taught an elder law course uh, for many years at the law school. Um, we talked with our children about this, and they agreed to have a conversation with us, and they the two of them, when they were in their 20s, completed mm-hmm. the healthcare proxy document. Uh, one, our daughter appointed my wife to be her healthcare agent and for and me to be her alternate. And my son appointed uh, me to be the agent and my wife to be his alternate. Okay. So if you get married, you're saying like with Cherry Schiavo, her husband isn't automatically her healthcare proxy. You still need to have a healthcare proxy even if you're married, because in Terry's case, her husband and her parents were fighting about that, and they had to go to the court to determine who was actually the proxy. Yes, well, it does depend to some extent on the law in the state where you live. So okay. for most states, you're right, uh, you should appoint someone to be your healthcare agent, otherwise um, there is a default in other in some sta- some states have statutes which do allow others to make healthcare decisions for you even in the absence of having appointed a healthcare agent. Uh, but that person may not necessarily be the person that you would have appointed to make decisions for you. Mm-hmm. So for some people, it's not probably wise, um, and they would not have wanted to appoint appointed their their spouse as their healthcare agent. For me, it's it's appropriate because the person you want to appoint is someone whom you trust to make decisions that you would have made, and they understand what your values are, and and also that they they will be a uh, a strong advocate for you. So my wife is both. She's she uh, both uh, understands. Uh, my wishes, my values, preferences, etc., uh, and and so she uh, is the right person in that sense. But and also would be uh, a strong advocate, so a trusted person and a strong advocate who is not necessarily your spouse. For and I'll give you an example of uh, a friend of mine uh, asked me to be her healthcare agent because her husband she thinks could not. Uh, have life-sustaining treatment withdrawn or withheld from her. She doesn't want to ever be on a ventilator, uh, and she thinks that her husband would probably put her on a ventilator if she needed one to help her breathe. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's why she appointed a friend, me, instead of her husband. So it's something that people really need to think about. Otherwise, again, if you don't have a healthcare agent, and such as in my friend's situation, if she hadn't appointed me or someone else to be her agent, her husband, by default, according to the New York statute, would then be the person who would be uh, uh, contacted to make healthcare decisions for her. Right. And they might not be the ones that she wants. 
I was thinking about the first case that you were describing also with the parents. In that case, it sounds like the parents were in agreement. But if you don't appoint one parent versus another and they're not in agreement, I don't know how that decision would be made. You've raised an excellent point, Mandy. I think that's that's exactly right. And in that situation, I don't know how things would have been decided. Uh, so fortunately, they were in agreement. So let me give you um, an example, though, for a uh, for a younger person. And this really it has to do with their parents, but it could apply to them as well. Uh, mm-hmm. It's an example I use. Um, frequently in discussing this with nursing students and social work students who I lecture on this topic. And and, and, and it's, I think, an important kind of consideration because this is what happens all the time. Conflicts arise, just mm-hmm. as they did in the Terry Schiavo case. So uh, let's say you're now um, 45 years old and you have an 80-year-old uh, parent who unfortunately has um, dementia and is also bedridden because of a stroke and they haven't communicated for years and you have a sibling so it's let's say you're the the female and you have a brother mm-hmm. and you've never had a discussion with your with your father about what his um wishes would be in terms of care and treatment if he were ever in this situation uh bedridden not being able to communicate any longer, not being able to do anything for himself any longer. And the question arises now that he has pneumonia, whether or not uh, he should be given antibiotics to help cure the pneumonia. Well, you as the daughter might say, geez, dad's always been a fighter. You know, he was in, um, in the Vietnam War and mm-hmm. he has always fought uh, in terms of his work and for and politically, and and so forth. And so let's just keep him going, because uh, I think he'd probably want to be kept alive. Well, you're a very loving daughter, and you want to do what's best for your dad. But your brother might say, well, you know, dad's gone through so much. He's suffered now. Look, he's, he, he has no meaningful life whatsoever. Why would we want to keep him alive? Well, then the question is, who's right? Yep. Well, we don't know who's right. Because dad never expressed his wishes, his values, his preferences. And so now you have a terrible conflict between you as the daughter and your brother, the son, uh, not knowing what to do for dad. And how is that going to be resolved? Well, it's not going to be resolved easily because there's no easy resolution because he could be given the antibiotics or not. And so this might have to go to what's called an ethics committee uh, at the hospital or nursing home or wherever he might be, uh, or even if he's at home, uh, so to guide a decision, or it might even have to go to court. You want to avoid all those things, and you want to avoid the conflicts, which can unfortunately tear people apart and keep them apart uh, throughout their lifetimes. And that's why it's so important to engage in this process. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by Inner Harbor, providing grief support to students and those that support them. Find us at www.inner-harbor.org. So what do you recommend for, you know, uh, let's say an 18-year-old is about to go to college 
Are there specific conversations or forms that uh, these kids should be filling out and, and talking about with their parents? Absolutely. Uh, in terms of conversations, uh, assuming that an 18-year-old would probably want to appoint one of his parents to be the agent and maybe the other one is the alternate, like our kids did when they were in their 20s, mm-hmm. um, uh, although, again, it could be a sibling or a close friend, uh, it's it's never too early to have the conversation uh, with um, those people, whoever you want to talk with, uh, and ask them, can can we have a serious conversation? And the reason that you want to have the conversation is because it's a it's a loving gift, both to the person who's going to be appointed to make decisions for you, presumably a close relative or friend, and for yourselves to ensure that that hopefully your healthcare wishes will be respected if ever someone else has to make healthcare decisions for you. So if people are willing to engage in that conversation, and most people are, even though it's very difficult to do so, then you sit down and you talk about what's important to you and what makes life meaningful for you. And and for some people, they would want to live as long as possible uh, and endure whatever suffering uh, they might have and be on any kind of life-sustaining treatments, it doesn't matter. Sometimes this is for religious reasons or for others, it doesn't matter. And that's their right because every person has the right to make healthcare decisions for themselves, whatever they are, uh, and they have to be respected by healthcare professionals and by anyone who's been appointed to make healthcare decisions for the person. But most of us at some point would say that, um, they would not want to continue to live uh, given some circumstances so that the quantity of life is not as important as quality of life. And at some point, they would not want to have treatment, care and treatments, which would keep them alive longer if they were to have to suffer or if they were to continue, if they were to continue to live the kind of life that they would not consider to be meaningful. So those are the kinds of things that need to be discussed. Right. Um, and for example, I mean, I can give some examples of mm-hmm. that. Uh, yeah. Let's say that you were going to be permanently unconscious, that you could not communicate with anyone any longer uh, mm-hmm. and ever again. Would you want to continue to live under those circumstances? Well, a small percentage of people would want to, but the vast majority of people would not want to. But if no one knows your wishes, frankly, healthcare professionals are trained to treat, 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 and to keep people alive so that even under those circumstances, if the person could be kept alive, they might be by healthcare professionals, not knowing what the person's wishes are unless someone were to say, that um, they know or acting in their best interest, they think that this person would not want to be kept alive under those circumstances. Um, If you were terminally ill, uh, would you want to continue to have treatment which could keep you alive? Or would you just want to to get what's called palliative care or care that's provided to hopefully give you the best quality of life possible as you continue uh, to live. Mm-hmm. So those are a couple of the kinds of situations which you might uh, want to discuss. Right. I've even heard of people talking about, you know, much smaller nuances, like 
I knew a woman who said her father loves chocolate ice cream. And if he was no longer able to eat chocolate ice cream, he wouldn't be, he wouldn't want to stay alive. So when he was no longer able to swallow, they weren't going to put in a feeding tube. Um, you know, those are the things that really determine what the quality of your life is. Yes. And again, it varies from individual to individual, which is why it's so important to have these conversations so that people know what is important for you, what makes life meaningful for you. Uh, for my father-in-law, was watching Mets games. Um, even if, uh, even when he didn't have decision-making capacity, we could we could watch old Mets games, and he'd think it was you know going on right now, and right. he would be perfectly uh, at a time when he had dementia. Mm-hmm. So, so everybody is different, which is again why it's so important to have these conversations and discussions and to appoint someone to be your healthcare agent. Now you asked Mandy about documents to be completed. And again, in most states, the document to complete is called the healthcare proxy, or in some states, the durable power for healthcare. They're fairly similar throughout the country uh, and they're relatively easy to complete. Uh, in New York, it's, it's just a two page document and can be completed relatively quickly. Although again, most important is to have the conversations before someone is appointed to be uh, your healthcare agent. And again, in New York, you can appoint someone to be your agent and one person or even more than one person to be an alternate agent for you. Uh, And you do not need to have a lawyer. uh, So you don't have to, there has it doesn't have to be any expense involved, uh, nor do you have to have a notary public. You do need to have two witnesses who are 18 years of age or older um, sign the document as well. And in New York right now, you can do this by remote witnessing uh, virtually uh, for the time being, at least up through October 6th, I think it is. And we have been actually working on a law to hopefully codify this right to make it uh, permanent so that people do not have to necessarily be with someone in person who is going to be witnessing the document. But uh, in any event, it's extremely important to complete the document, uh, and but easy to do so. And where do you find the document? Well, uh, most, doc- most of these documents can be found on state Health Department websites. You can get okay. go to the New York State Department of Health website in in New York, for example. Mm-hmm. You can go to the website of my organization, End of Life Choices New York. We have the document there as well. Again, it's uh, in New York and maybe some other states. The only thing that you specifically have to to state are your wishes with regard to um, artificial nutrition and hydration, and you either have to state what those wishes are, or that your healthcare agent knows what your wishes are with regard to artificial nutrition and hydration. I actually think that that requirement is going to be um, eliminated by statute in the coming years uh, so that decisions, even with regard to artificial nutrition and hydration, even if not clearly known, can be made in the patient's best interest, if necessary, Uh, although it's still probably a good idea to have a discussion uh, with your healthcare agent about uh, what your wishes are regarding artificial nutrition and hydration and when 
if and when you would want it and if and when you might not want it. Okay. And though it's the same form, so it's just the one form for the proxy and your end-of-life wishes, those are all the same? Well, in, in New York, and I think in most states, you can combine uh, both. You can appoint someone to be your healthcare agent, and you can state your specific wishes if you want to, or you can complete a separate document, which is called a living will, mm-hmm. which usually um, is much more comprehensive with regard to your specific wishes. Again, in New York, and it varies from state to state, there is no legal form, uh, although your wishes have to be recognized that are placed in a living will if they are uh, absolutely clear, if it's clear and convincing evidence of what your wishes are. Um, What we advise most people uh, with regard to living wills is that they if they want to complete a living will, that's fine, uh, and, but they should only probably give it to their healthcare agent and perhaps other loved ones who might be involved in their care and treatment, and not give it to their doctors unless, uh, and their healthcare agent shouldn't do this unless it's absolutely necessary uh, because their the person's wishes are perhaps unclear to the healthcare professionals or they think that the person, the healthcare agent, is not acting in good faith. Because, unfortunately, too many living wills are either not specific enough or too specific, according to healthcare professionals, and confusing to them. So the more, the more important thing is to have a person who is available to make healthcare decisions for you. Uh, and the living will can be used to guide that person in making decisions mm-hmm. for you, but again, probably should not be given to healthcare professionals generally unless uh, there is some confusion or some questions are raised by healthcare professionals about uh, what your wishes are, in fact, um, with regard to certain circumstances. Sure. Yeah, I mean, you can't possibly think of every single scenario. So, you know, filling out a form is is fine, but you're definitely not going to be able to cover every single base that might happen. You never know what's going to happen to you. That's why it's so important to have the proxy. That's exactly right. Um, and the other thing to consider, though, is there are people, unfortunately, and probably young people as well, who don't have anyone that they can appoint as their healthcare agent either because they don't have close family members, they don't get along, they don't have friends who are willing to do it, and so forth. So in that situation, I think it is important probably to complete the living will um, and maybe even give it to healthcare professionals because uh, to make sure that uh, at least someone has this document who's going to be, who may be involved in making healthcare decisions for, for, for the person. Um, right. But hopefully, at least for most young people, there are people who are available to be, uh, who are, can be appointed as the healthcare agent. Sure. I'm also just thinking about, you know, uh, a student goes away to college and they're hours or a plane ride away from home and they get into a car accident they end up in a hospital, they may or may not ask for their healthcare proxy or may or may not be able to tell somebody who their proxy is. So those forms don't just automatically show up with you in the hospital. 
Oh, you're absolutely right. Uh, so it's important once you've completed the document uh, and your healthcare agent has it you know, to give it to as many people as as possible. If you're uh, and I don't know how it works in colleges and universities. Um, mm-hmm. If they have a pl- someone that you can give the document to uh, in those venues, whether it's a resident advisor or someone in health services right. uh, there, but um, you can put it on your on your phone, um, mm-hmm. and you can tell uh, friends um, at at your college or university. By the way, just in case anything happens to me, I have a healthcare proxy. My agent is so and so. And I want you to know that it's on my phone. I've taken a picture of it. Uh, it's, and frankly, it is on my phone. Uh, mm-hmm. my, my wife and my kids have it on their phones. Uh, and they have copies, of course, as well. So you want to have, and we actually have one on our refrigerator, a copy, just like you do. Uh, and younger people don't know this, but for older people who have a do not resuscitate order, or maybe they do know it, uh, that pink form uh, or the form is on is kept ordinarily in a person's on a person's refrigerator. Well, my wife and I have put our healthcare proxies on our refrigerator because my wife probably could never find mine otherwise, except mm-hmm. maybe on her phone. Um, and so it's important to to make sure that that document is going to be found, and copies of it are valid. Doesn't have to be the original, and you okay. should give copies, of course, to all, to your doctors as well. So my primary care doctor and my cardiologist both have a copy of my healthcare proxy, and they know generally my what my wishes are. Mm-hmm. So uh, very important to, to do these things um, so that uh, the document is going to be hopefully readily available if and when something happens very quickly and someone uh, so, so, that, so that people can find the document and refer yep. to it. And the person who is going, who is the healthcare agent, can be contacted uh, relatively quickly. Right. These are not those kinds of forms. I feel like you know these are really important forms. And frequently, people think of important forms. I'm going to put them in a safe. I'm going to give them to the lawyer. I'm going to put them away. But these are actually forms that you want readily available. These are not those kinds of forms. That's right. And you certainly don't want to just put it in a safe deposit box where no one can right. get it. No one can find the key to this uh, easily. Yeah. So that's not yeah. the place where you want to keep your healthcare proxy. Um, you know, when my so, son went to college, we had him fill out, um, it was called My Five Wishes. And yeah. it also, you know, it provided all of that information about healthcare proxies and some, you know, some space to put healthcare wishes. It also had a little card, like uh, the size of a driver's license, that lists who your healthcare proxy is and our phone numbers and all those things. And it's in his wallet so that if he is in an accident or something, uh, somebody can pull that out as well. So that was, you know, that gives me some comfort. You sure, yeah. And and five wishes is, is a pretty good form, I think, although mm-hmm. um, I might... And you could, but you can modify it as you want. It mm-hmm. doesn't have to be exactly as it's printed up, right? And yep. if you think there are some provisions in there which don't actually uh, uh, comply with what your wishes are, or not, or inconsistent with your wishes in some regard, you can change the document uh, and then and then and then sign it. But it does have some useful, but it is useful, I think, in in some ways 
except I think the way it's printed up, it does mm-hmm. give a little bit too much authority, frankly, in my view, to doctors. But something, again, that people might want to take a look at uh, because yeah. it is readily available. I think it's available for free right now, um, Five Wishes. And you can also get healthcare proxy. A lot of some organizations uh, do have the healthcare proxy form in a wallet size. Um, I have mine. I'm trying to think of it's the um, where it came from. Uh, Health Association of New York State, I think it's called. Um, and so I have a wallet size card, which is also in my wallet, okay. which gives the information as to who my health care agent is and and my wife and her, her contact information. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So um, I also, I always like to ask people, um, you know, this is a very strange time, but what are you doing if you're doing anything? Maybe you're not. I hope you are. But um, what are you doing to take care of yourself during the pandemic? Um, I've been exercising a little bit more because I, I find it very helpful in terms of, uh, how I feel physically Mm -hmm. and mentally. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm doing a little more walking and sometimes walking and swimming the same day. I used to just do one or the other. Um, and so I've been doing that and, um, and spending really good quality time with my wife. Uh, I think we've actually become closer. We've been married 45 years. And wow. so I think it's, while it's been very difficult, and we're very fortunate, we live in a nice large home and we have a lot of rooms we can spend time in independently. We have separate offices, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, we, and what we were doing um, uh, early on, we were taking walks in different towns we'd never been to before, different neighborhoods, which mm-hmm. was really nice. You know, quiet neighborhoods. Uh, especially on weekends, uh, sure. which was which was fun. Uh, we're watching some more movies, uh, more movies than we used to, um, and other programming on on television. Watching some, and because we can't go out to see plays and so so forth or operas, and which we enjoy doing, we've been watching uh, occasionally on um, on the computer on our computer on our mm-hmm. computer. So mm-hmm. that's that's all been good, and we spend. Fortunately, as much time as we can with our kids, and now we're having, with the good weather, we've been having friends over with social distancing sure. uh, in our backyard. Uh, so we've been extremely fortunate. Our lives haven't changed that much. I've been working from home for the past 18 years. So uh, what I do miss is the contact with people. I give a lot of talks, and so no more face-to-face uh, lectures, right. or there haven't been any for many months now, so I'm doing it by Zoom, but it's still much better than not doing them at all. Sure, sure. I'm glad that you get to do it because you have a very important message, and I'm glad that it's still getting out there. Thank you. Again, uh, let me suggest that people go to our website and mm-hmm. and and to the Conversation Project website because we have a, a lot of good information about uh, end-of-life issues, choices, uh, and uh, even for young people, I think they would find it somewhat informative and even interesting. And so I encourage young people to do this. And hopefully we will get some more young people having these conversations, uh, important for them, but also for their parents who probably have not done so as well, because most people haven't had these conversations or completed these documents until uh, it 
until very late in the game. And sometimes it's too late and they don't get it done. So uh, again, I strongly encourage uh, young people to start having these conversations with their parents and grandparents, if they're still alive and to ensure that everybody is completing is is completing the healthcare proxy or durable power of attorney document. Thank you. If people have more questions, David, is there a way that they can reach out to you directly? Are you on the website or? Yeah, it's easiest to reach me at my old uh, email address, mm-hmm. um, which is my name, David C as in Charles Levin, L-E-V-E-N at AOL.com. Again, it's David C. Levin at AOL.com. Or you can call me on my cell phone, uh, 914-907-6156. And if any of your young listeners or older listeners, for that matter, are are interested in having me speak to any organization or group about any end-of-life issues, I am always available to do so. And we have a wonderful PhD clinical director, Judy Schwartz, she's a PhD nurse, and she is an expert also on end-of-life issues and planning, uh, and uh, and so she's also available. So uh, we're very happy to uh, to talk with any group or organization about the issues which we've been discussing this morning, or other end-of-life issues, including, uh, for example, uh, palliative care or hospice, uh, or end-of-life decision-making and choices, uh, etc. Thank you. That's very generous of you. And I hope people do reach out. You've been a wealth of information for as long as I've known you. So thank you you very much, Mandy. It's great to be on your show. Thank you to David Levin of End of Life Choices of New York for this interview and to Stephen Bluestein for audio production. Join us next week when we talk to Sam Levine, a student at Syracuse University, about his experience in quarantine due to the virus. That's all for today. Good morning to all of you.